Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. Well, Israel at this time is a people without a country. They're surviving in gargantuan tent encampments out in the hostile wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. Their only reliable source of food was the supernaturally supplied manna, which apparently rained down daily, and whatever other foods and spices they might have irregularly acquired from the hordes of caravan merchants who would have followed them around relentlessly. I mean, there is no way that three million Israelites wandered around the Sinai undetected. I mean, most of the Middle East was aware of them by now. Of course, there would have been a great business opportunities for those willing to make that trip. But what would the Israelites have had to trade? The gold and silver that the people of Egypt were ordered by Pharaoh to give to the departing Israelites as a sort of peace offering to their awesome God. And by the way, Egypt to this day wants that gold and silver returned to them. And this is one of the major bones of contention between Egypt and modern Israel. One can only imagine how sick and tired of this kind of life the Hebrews were. How disgruntled with the leadership they had become. How hopeless most must have felt knowing that the majority of them would never live to enter the land that they had left Egypt to claim as their own. Towards the end of their second year, after leaving Egypt, they had arrived at the oasis of Kadesh Barnea, which lay on the southern border of Canaan. But ten of the twelve tribal leaders balked at entering Canaan because of fear. In God's eyes, the basis of this fear was a lack of trust. Lack of trust in Him. Because seven centuries earlier, the Lord had promised Abraham that his offspring would have their own country. This country. Moses was told this as well. He'd pass this on to the Israelites. The result of the lack of trust was catastrophic. God ordained that no one of an age of accountability at the time of their refusal to go forward would live long enough to enter Canaan except for Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses would go. It would take 38 more years before that unfaithful generation died off. And the Lord would again afford Israel, this time a new generation of Israel, the opportunity to choose. Choose fear in what their eyes and their emotions tell them, or choose to believe what Jehovah has guaranteed them in the Abrahamic covenant. And it was inherent in the terms and conditions of the Mosaic covenant. Well, finally, at the appointed time, the Israelites again began their move towards Canaan, the promised land. And this time, they didn't hesitate to move forward and to follow God. They circled around. They avoided the lands of, of uh, Moab, uh, which was named for a son of Lot, and 
they avoided Edom, another name, by the way, for Esau. And they took on a less formidable foe in Heshbon, north of Moab. They fought, they won, they, they used the area as a staging ground for their conquest of Canaan. Many chose to go no further. They wanted to settle there, on the east side of the Jordan River. Well, it's about 1300 B.C. The Israelites are standing on the east bank of the, the Yarden, the, the Jordan River, ready to take possession of the land, and then Moses dies. They mourn him for 30 days. The Torah, first five books of the Bible, makes it clear that he had audible conversation with God throughout his ministry. Yahshua, Joshua, is then anointed the new leader. He leads God's people to their new home. It was spring. Led by Kohanim, priests, carrying the Ark of the Covenant with the Torah of God safely inside its golden enclosure, they waded across the normally overflowing Jordan River. The moment the Kohanim's feet touched that water, God made the raging river shallow for a few hours by stopping the flow of the river upstream. Once the Two or three million strong horde crossed. They fought, they conquered, they moved on. They settled, they fought, they conquered. Again and again in lightning fashion, winning with relative ease. So, Joshua led Israel. They took the land of Canaan. The covenant promise God made to Abraham 700 years earlier was finally realized. The land was divided up among the twelve tribes of Israel, as God ordered, and Canaan became home to Jehovah's chosen people. It is at this time that a a 600-year-old prophecy began to manifest itself as we find this curious transformation within the makeup of the twelve Israelite tribes. The cross-handed blessing that Jacob, Israel, laid upon the children of Joseph, making Ephraim virtually a son instead of a grandson, is at the crux of this land division. In the biblical record of the division of the land, we discover a listing of 13, not 12, tribes of Israel. And mysteriously, Joseph's name is missing from those 13. In his stead, we find two names listed as tribes of Israel that were not the natural sons of Jacob, called Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. This anomaly is because of Jacob's cross-handed blessing. That ancient blessing by which Jacob adopted Joseph's two Egyptian sons away from him. We see the tribe of Levi is not granted a named territory within Canaan. Rather, they are to be set apart and treated differently because God has anointed them as His personal servants, His priests, His Kohanim. Therefore, the Levites are given cities, they're given pasture lands within each of the tribal territories. The Levites are no longer considered a tribe of Israel. 
Because God has adopted, think about this, God has adopted Levi away from Jacob. Centuries after Jacob adopted Joseph's children away from him. The Levites are now the tribe devoted to God. To be clear, even though 13 tribes are listed, only 12 of them get territory. The 13th tribe, Levi, doesn't. And as we move through the Old Testament, keep in mind that Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in essence carry on the tribal um, inheritance and the authority for their father Joseph. Well, various battles and wars ensue to subdue the Canaanite peoples. They continue for years with the Israelites generally being successful. However, not every Canaanite city was taken. Mass slaughter was the common mode of taking another's nation from them. There's no record of mass slaughter by the Israelites. Certainly they burned many of the city-states. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of the enemy were killed in battle. But as, as was also customary for the time, often just a, a show of force was all that was necessary to bring the opposing king to the treaty table. Apparently Joshua decided to follow this ancient tradition. Agreements, treaties were reached with several kings of the east. Tributes paid to Israel. And the defeated kings were allowed to live and to continue on ruling their people usually as a vassal. This would all come back to haunt the Israelites. Because God had instructed them they were to kill or drive out all the inhabitants of Canaan from the promised land. Instead, the Israelites chose to do things in a way that seemed good to their own minds. And how dearly they were going to pay for that decision for centuries to come. Well, a small pagan city-state that later would be called Jerusalem, Jerusalem, was captured by the Israelite tribes of Judah and Shimon, Simeon. But they soon abandoned the city for reasons unknown. Shortly, the pagan Jebusites took that city, and they held it for quite a long time. But Yehuda, Judah, and Shimon, Simeon, held on to the surrounding hill countryside outside of the city of Jerusalem. A long ridge of hills, you see, flows roughly from Jerusalem to Gezer, just a few miles from the Mediterranean. This natural barrier with its few mountain passes also formed a natural boundary between the tribe of Judah and the ten other Israelite tribes that occupied the land north of it. This fact of geography would play a very important role in Israel's history. Well, about 50 years after first entering Canaan, Joshua called a meeting of all the tribal elders. The purpose was to bring together all the tribes of Israel along with a handful of the other non-Hebrew but Semitic tribes and unite them in a peace treaty among themselves. The meeting was also to remind them of God's laws, to make a pact with God that He would be their Lord and their King. Not too long after this meeting, Joshua died. He was buried in the area controlled by the tribe of 
Ephraim, the tribe he was born into. Well, after the death of Joshua, the twelve tribes of Israel, and remember a thirteenth tribe, Levi, was no longer considered as part of Israel. They were a loose confederation. They had no central leadership. Rather, they considered Yehovah or Yahweh, God, their king. However, they didn't take God or the pact they made with him seriously. Each Israelite was loyal only to his own clan and tribe. So they soon found themselves in a state of anarchy, often battling one another with, while simultaneously warring with many of the Canaanite people that Joshua had foolishly allowed to stay in the land. Now it's important to understand that the tribal system of governance and organization hardly lends itself to a centralized leadership. Witness the current situation in Afghanistan, or better yet, Iraq, where the U.S. is attempting, with limited success, to install a federal government in a country where the tribal system still exists. Virtually every Afghan and Iraqi is a member of some tribe or another, and to complicate matters further, they're also loyal to some sect of Islam or another, And in the minds of those tribal leaders, their lifetime goal, the purpose for their very existence, is to build up their own tribe to achieve the most possible influence over the other tribes. And they may well compromise with other tribes from time to time, but it's only to buy more time as part of a plan to eventually dominate. Building up one's tribe is achieved primarily through pillaging another's property and dominating them by means of warfare. By definition, even temporary cooperation among tribes is only a means to an end. The end being domination over their rival tribes. It was like this with the tribes of Israel as they continually vied with one another to move their way up that power ladder. They had no interest whatsoever in establishing a common leadership for the good of the Israelite people as a whole. One can only imagine how Moses managed to lead these people successfully for 40 years. Now because the Canaanites were allowed to remain in the land, even to become allies. The Israelites began intermarrying with them. Peace with security. That was the new goal of the Israelites. And it seemed to the generation that conquered the land, now so very weary of war, that compromise, tolerance, generally through the making of treaties and alliances, that was the solution. This quickly led to Israel accepting and even adopting the ways of their heathen neighbors, particularly worship of the many Canaanite gods. God wasted little time in taking action. Within 20 years of Joshua's death, the Israelites were in a fight for their survival. God allowed many nations to attack and harass 
the various tribes of Israel, Moabites, Edomites, Canaanites, Midianites, Ammonites, many other foreign tribes and peoples made their lives miserable. And in response to that, God raised up judges within each tribe, usually to save one tribe or another from oppression or even destruction. These judges called Shofet in Hebrew were arbitrators and they were magistrates. Some were warriors and saviors. Because there was no interest in centralized rule, a Shofet, a judge, was usually only concerned with matters concerning his or her own tribe, no others. Actually, although it may seem otherwise in reading the Bible, crises were not occurring everywhere at once in Canaan. Some tribes lived relatively peacefully at the same time others were were fighting off various invaders. No shofet, no judge, ever seemed to be successful at uniting the tribes, particularly because unification was never their goal. Dominance of their tribe over the other tribes and of the, over their neighbors. That was their underlying mission. Various shofet, shoftim actually, judges, came and went for about 250 years until the people longed for unity. So, Shaul, Saul, was made king over all the tribes. Well, it's now about 1050 B.C. At the same time, that King Shaul was consolidating his power among the reluctant Israelite tribal leaders. Down in Egypt, Pharaoh Ramesses III was fighting off an invading group of seafaring warriors called the Sea Peoples. We know these Sea Peoples as the Philistines. And they were a formidable foe for the Israelites as well. Prior to Saul, there was a total of 12 male and female shoftim, judges, identified in the Bible. Jewish tradition sometimes doesn't agree with Christian doctrine on who qualified as a shofet, who didn't. Some ruled as short a period of time as three years, others as long as about 80 years. Although Shmuel, Samuel, is called a judge in the Bible, he's generally considered to be in a a unique classification. He was more a prophet than a judge, and, and perhaps the closest thing of that time to a centralized leader. Samuel was sort of a link and a facilitator, transitioning the Israelites from the era of the judges into the era of the kings. By being the one with this authority to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. Well, among the more famous Shoftim were names we're pretty familiar with. Deborah, Deborah of the tribe of Ephraim, Gidon, Gideon of the tribe of Manasseh, and Shimshon, Samson of the tribe of Dan. Now Deborah saved her tribe from the Canaanites about 50 years after Joshua's death by maneuvering the enemy into a wash that suddenly became a death trap 
when a torrent of water and rocks drowned them in a, a supernaturally timed flash flood. Bands of marauding Midianites, Amalekites, Arabians, Arabians were descendants of Ishmael, ravaged the northern tribes of Israel including Gidon's, Gideon's tribe of Manasseh for years. These nomads would always come at harvest time. Then they'd work in concert to pillage and steal the food supply of God's people. Gideon, using only 300 men, put a stop to it when his small band of Israelites concealed torches in clay pots and they sneaked up on these tent dwellers at night. And they set their encampments afire. And in the confusion, Gideon's men put many of the enemy to the sword. Others died in the fire. They killed one another. And still more simply fled for their lives. The Israelites generally held their own. They're pretty much able to hold in check all the invaders except for one. The Philistines. It was these same Philistines who were bedeviling Egypt. And the Philistines, you see, were superb warriors. As excellent in warfare on land as they were on the sea. They had a real technological advantage over most of their opponents. Iron. Using iron chariots, iron swords, they terrorized Judah in the south and the tribes of central Israel. And they captured and they controlled the Mediterranean Sea shipping routes, almost all the important land trade routes. The Israelites were overmatched. And the various Israelite tribes made treaties with the Philistines to survive. And the central theme of these treaties always involved the Israelites paying enormous taxes to the Philistines. Shimshon, Samson, was a judge that God raised up to fight the Philistines. Well, Shimshon, generally regarded as the the last of the Shoftim judges, was anointed by God prior to his birth. Samson was unique among the judges as being also designated as a Nazarite. Now, Nazarenes and Nazarites are sometimes confused as being one and the same. That is not the case. A Nazarene was actually a Jewish sect in the time of Christ and thereafter as opposed to a Nazarite who is one who has made a special type of a vow to God. The term Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nezer which means to separate. And that well describes the focus of the Nazarite, which is to separate himself apart from normal life, to be totally consecrated to God. The notion of the Nazarite vow appears to have originated from around the time of Moses and can involve making vows of either a positive or or a negative nature. That is a vow to do something or a vow not to do something. A Nazarite has three obligations he's to fulfill in addition to whatever the exact purpose was of his vow. First, he must never cut his hair. Second, he cannot become defiled by touching a dead body, not even that of his siblings or his parents. And third, he can drink no wine. Sometimes his prohibition extended to unfermented grape juice, even to any grape product at all. 
the result of violating any of these prohibitions is that after a time of some very specific purification procedures, the period of the vow that he made starts all over again. There are two types of Nazarites. A perpetual Nazarite and a Nazarite for life. Interestingly, the perpetual Nazarite's term of a vow can be for any length of time but no less than 30 days, one lunar cycle. A Nazarite for life is apparently rare and the Bible mentions only three of these. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Although certainly there was probably more. Now Shimshon's tribe of Dan endured this misfortune of sharing a border with the Philistines. So they were constantly harassed by these pagan warriors with their advanced weaponry. Endowed with superhuman strength and very little self-control, Shimshon indulged himself with prostitutes, partied with the pagans, he even married a Philistine woman. No matter, God used him. Flaws and all to punish the Philistines in all manner of way, including demolishing their temple of worship to their chief god, Dagon. His final undoing was consorting with a beautiful woman named Delilah. He died after never having fully succeeded in defeating the Philistines. Well, around 1040 BC, the Israelite tribes have put aside their differences and they attempt to make a united stand against the Philistines. But they still tolerate no central leader. The Philistines and the Israelites met in battle a couple of miles from Jaffa. The fighting was brutal and the Israelite tribe's forces were annihilated. But in a worse humiliation, they lost their treasured Ark of the Covenant to their enemy. That's because they brought it from its resting place in the hill country. In a place called Shiloh. Shiloh. Taking many of you there. They brought it to the field of battle to use it like a good luck charm. They hoped God would help them in combat. Facing little choice, the tribes decided they either, at this point, after this huge loss... They either had to give up their tribal independence to achieve a unified Israel or they were going to lose their freedom to the pagans. Well, Samuel, a prophet from the tribe of Benjamin, in reluctant agreement with the elders of the other tribes, anointed Saul, also of the tribe of Benjamin, as the first king of Israel. Now, although he was anointed as a king, Shaul is at first seen more as a centralized judge by the tribes. This apparently was a little bit easier for some of the larger and more fiercely independent tribes to swallow than the idea of bowing down to a monarch. But pretty soon it became apparent that a central, king, a central judge was a king. And this, this immediately created a loyalty problem with the tribal elders and they cooled to the whole idea of it. However, an opportunity soon arose for Saul to show his merit. The dreaded Ammonites These were those who were descended from Lot's son, Ammon. The Ammonites attacked the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And Saul responds by calling all the tribes and clans to 
arms and he leads them in an attempt to rescue this city from the pagans. Victory ensues and within days the anointed and charismatic Saul is acknowledged throughout the land as a true king, the first king of Israel. Well, Saul was a very busier warrior king. He spent his entire reign in battle. But it was an army of militia that he commanded. There was no standing army. Each soldier had to equip himself with food and weapons. This meant it was an untrained army of peasants and craftsmen who had much more responsibility than just fighting off the enemy. They had to provide a living. They had to provide leadership for their families as well as vanquishing the enemy when they were called upon. So after every battle campaign, these warriors went home to plow their fields or watch over flocks or engage in their special trade crafts. There seemed to be no end to these hordes of pagan tribes that attacked Israel. Years of war dragged on. Shaul was becoming moody and depressed and short-tempered as he realized he was probably never going to see peace. For the people, (laughs) Bloom was off. The man they first hailed as as a charismatic savior was now seen by many as a failure. At the foot of Mount Gilboa, Shaul, with his Israelite army completely outwitted, outgunned, being decimated by the Philistines, he lost three of his sons in battle in a single day. He couldn't take any more. So he impaled himself upon his own sword. It was just before 1000 B.C., The first king of Israel is dead. The twelve tribes are in disarray. The Philistines rule the land. All that remained of the tribal armies was a small band of 600 men who wandered and hid in guerrilla fashion in the hilly area of southern Judah. This group was led by a man who was made an outcast by the mentally deranged Saul. His name was David. God had only given the Israelites their king, Saul, because they cried out to be led as their pagan neighbors were being led by a human king instead of God himself. So God gave them a man who he warned was going to turn out to be a curse to them. Yet in his mercy, God was readying another to be king a man who he would later refer to as a man after my own heart. And when God decided to reveal this king, who was to replace Saul, it was to be done in secret, knowing Saul was never going to stand for it. Shmuel, Samuel, was sent by God to the house of Yishai, Jesse, where he was to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the next king. Yishai paraded all of his sons by Shmuel, one after the other, until the youngest, David, was chosen. Now the Bible describes David as as short, having a ruddy complexion, red hair, and overall quite handsome. David was extremely gifted as a poet, a musician, eventually as a warrior leader. It was his musical prowess, though, 
brought him into initial service to King Shaul. Playing a lyre, singing songs, it was David's job to soothe this always brooding king. He's a musician and a poet for right now. In time, he's going to become Saul's armor bearer. Bringing David into constant contact with the king and and all of his court, putting him in front of the people. And after serving Saul for a time, David, still a boy, returns to his hometown of Bethlehem, Bethlehem. And sometime later, after David has slain the giant Philistine warrior named Goliath using only a leather sling and a few smooth stones, he enters the service of King Saul again. This time, though, he's an officer of troops. These are not the typical tribal militia, however. These are hardened mercenaries. And they win encounter after encounter against the Philistines. The people are impressed with David. At the same time, David's forming this close relationship with Jonathan, one of Saul's sons. Well, the outcome of all these events produces a paranoid reaction from King Saul, who's now convinced David's out to take his kingdom away from him. And worse, he believes the people of Israel support that. Saul can't allow David to live. The king tried a number of ways to have David done away with. Every time the plan went as a rise as battle campaigns. Jonathan, Jonathan, the legitimate heir to the throne, he finds out that David has been anointed by God to be the next king. And what must have been one of the most difficult acts of faith in a magnanimous show of friendship, Jonathan graciously submits to God's will. He gives up his own right to succeed his father as king. He vows to support God's choice of David as the next king of Israel. Pretty impressive. Shaul makes another attempt on David's life. This time David takes his 600 loyal troops and he flees. It is a desperate time for David. Desperate. Absolutely loyal to Saul. Doing everything Saul asks from him and more. Risking his life constantly for the king. David and his men now live in caves. They have to forage for food. They move around to avoid the the, the mentally unstable Saul. Many of the psalms that we read and pray today were composed by David during his personal wilderness experience. Well, after Saul's death on the battlefield, David is devastated. He truly loves Saul, despite the king's resolve to send him to an early grave. The tribal leaders of Judah agree to make David king over the southern tribal territories. In the north, however, Saul's lone remaining son, Ishbosheth, is named king by Saul's former military commander, Abner. The northern tribes were in disarray. They generally didn't agree with Abner's choice. Ishbosheth was poor king material. Many in the north remembered David and his victories. They were loyal to him. So now, civil war breaks out in the north for two years. Brothers fighting against brothers. Clans against clans. It was brutal. The 
bad blood that grew among these ten northern tribes during the period of civil war actually led to a series of, of revenge killings that in the end paved the way for unification. At the age of 30, having reigned over Judah for seven years, David now becomes king over all Israel. For the first time in history, the tribes of the north and the south reluctantly agreed to become one nation. Israel, under one king, David. It's 1000 BC. China has discovered refrigeration by using cut blocks of winter ice stored for use in the summertime. In Greece, Troy has been conquered. The Dorians have invaded and toppled the culture and the Greeks now enter their dark age. The use of iron is becoming widespread throughout the Middle East and the Far East. It's technology transported via the extensive land and sea trade networks that crisscross this region. David, back in Israel, has a politically divisive problem on his hands. There may have been only one king, but there were two capital cities. Hebron in the south, Mahanaim in the north. The solution? A new but neutral site. And a city named Jerusalem. That fit the bill. This already ancient city, briefly held by the Israelites hundreds of years earlier than it was abandoned, was still in the hands of the Jebusites. It was only about 12 acres in size, and the city controlled the mountain passes and it had very thick walls for defense. David made quick work of acquiring it by sneaking troops in through a water tunnel, surprising the occupants. Jerusalem was now his. He named it the city of David. And from there he ruled his nation. David, who was God's choice as king, was now set. He had a powerful and confident standing army, had a capital city, and he had all the support of the twelve tribes. He was immediately victorious in subduing the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, other neighboring nations as well. Controlling now the all-important trade routes, he taxed their use to fund his battle campaigns to expand his empire. This was a unique time of opportunity for Israel. They had no opposition from other large nations. Egypt, in decline right now, was in internal turmoil, and they had lost its strong influence over the region in and around Canaan. Assyria had its empire building temporarily cut short by the Arameans. So in quick fashion, David constructed the greatest empire at that time in the Middle Eastern region of the world. Well, David now asked Nathan, Nathan, the prophet, his prophet, if he thought God would allow him to build a temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. It's kind of a good news, bad news reply. No, God says, it will not be you, David, but your offspring will construct the temple. However, David's line, his dynasty, shall inherit Israel's thrones, throne eternally. God, David, providing his humility before God, asked him why he should be so blessed. 
But David isn't without flaws. Wandering the parapets of his palace one evening, he looks over the rail and he sees a beautiful Bathsheba while she's bathing. He decides he has to have her. Bathsheba was a married woman. And what ensues is probably the darkest spot on David's life. Adultery. And then murder covered up. Perhaps remembering one of Saul's many attempts to kill him by sending him on a suicide mission, he does the same thing with Bathsheba's husband who is a military officer. The plan works to perfection. For David, Bathsheba is his. She becomes pregnant from this sordid affair. The baby, a treasured son, dies. Now David, confronted by Nathan, admits his sin. Tearfully, full of remorse, he begs the Lord for forgiveness. God shows him mercy. But God's holiness can't allow rebellion to go unpunished. So God sentences David by saying, The sword shall never depart from your house. It never did. A series of tragedies within his family will ensue that plague a broken-hearted King David all the way to his deathbed. Well, a little later, little later, Bathsheba gives birth to a second son, Shlomo, Solomon. David also has more children by other women. His oldest son, Ammon, rapes his own half-sister, Tamar. Another brother, Absalom, has Omnon killed for his detestable act. Then he flees to his mother's hometown. God's punishment upon David is very evident. God knows, I mean, David knows it. David is on the throne now of united Israel, the sovereign nation of Israel. Israel is growing, it's prospering. But the tribal leaders are starting to once again become unhappy. Their people have given loyalty to a king. So, their personal tribal authority and autonomy has suffered. Bitter clan leaders meet secretly to plot rebellion against King David. Absalom, suspecting that his father David intended on turning the throne over to Shlomo, to Solomon in time, spent the next four years gaining the confidence of many of these disgruntled tribal leaders and plotting an overthrow. And at a carefully calculated point in time, he marches an army into Jerusalem, attacks, much to the surprise of his aging father David. He was unprepared for the coup attempt by his son. So David fled. Later he regained full possession of his throne, but he wept bitter tears over his beloved son Absalom, who was killed in this process. Well, a few years later, a shriveled up, bedridden David had not declared his successor. Now even though the nation was well fortified, it was firmly under control, the twelve tribes were divided into twelve prospering districts, there was disagreement among those closest to the throne concerning the all-important question of who should be the next king of Israel. Finally, at the prophet Nathan's urging, David officially declared his son Shlomo his successor. It's 965 BC. At the age of 70, David dies. Solomon takes the throne of a nation of one and a half million fighting men. 
about 6 million total population. Just about the same as Israel is today, almost 3,000 years later. Solomon inherited an empire that was built by his father. But as is common among fathers and sons, these were very different kinds of men. David was a warrior. Solomon was a builder. David, commanding an army, conquered peoples. He conquered nations. He expanded Israel's borders. Solomon built political coalitions. He made treaties. Quite often accomplished by marrying a member of the Hope for Allies royal family. This was a common method of, of creating alliances well before and after this era. His harem swelled to over 700 wives and 300 concubines as a result of this. David spent his reign securing and protecting the empire. Shlomo spent his reign pursuing the trappings of royalty, wealth, culture, unmatched luxury. Well, Solomon was an astute businessman. He collected commissions for arranging business deals. He collected tolls for the use of the trade routes that were under his control. With this wealth piling up, he used the money to expand Jerusalem and to build the first temple as God had promised David. Shlomo was a prolific writer. He was a scientist. He was a scholar. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs. He composed over 1,000 songs. He studied plants and animals. He authored three books that would become part of the scriptures that Jesus would study. End quote. Proverbs, Ecclesiastics, and the Song of Shlomo, Song of Solomon. They're still part of our modern Bible. Yerushalayim became world-renowned for its magnificence, for its sophistication. It was a truly international city. Wealthy men and royalty came from every nation just to behold its stunning beauty and to listen to Solomon's already legendary wisdom. But such opulence always comes at a price. Solomon's grandiose lifestyle, his insatiable appetite, for building projects began to run the national treasury out of money. At one point, he actually ceded land from Israel to the king of Tyre to pay for some construction material. Now this act was utterly repugnant to the people. But he simply shrugged at their outrage and he reacted to the shortage of funds by resorting to forced labor for his building projects and increasing the already burdensome taxes. Israel had been turned into his personal playground, an edifice to himself, and the tribal elders were seething. In the end, his attraction to the pagan world was his undoing. As wise as he purported himself to be, and he was in many ways, he was an even greater fool. He had married literally hundreds of pagan women who were permitted to continue worshiping their idols and gods with his blessing. This was an abomination to the God of Israel. And it was a, another distinct difference between Shlomo and his father David. Well, after a reign of 40 years, 
Solomon died in 925 BC. The dream of Israel as a dominating empire and a world power went to the grave with him. And we'll continue with this journey next week.